welcome back to Series 2 of Unmuzzled at 67. Now we're on Episode 2, and this episode is called The Miracle Child. So let's do a quick recap. Here I am, eight and a half months uh, pregnant, living in a flat in the West End because my parents have asked me to leave the house. Fair enough. Do you know what I mean? Fair enough. So if you're sitting comfortably, I'll begin. One night, a friend was visiting me in my flat and she left maybe about 11, something like that. She says, you know what, Christine, I'm going to jump down to Great Western Road and get a taxi. Because uh, it was literally five minutes away from my flat. I said, um, do you know what, I think I'll come with you. I've not even had any, any fresh air really the day. So... Down we go. She gets a taxi almost right away and I start to walk back up to my flat. And I notice here in the left-hand side of me, there's one of these huge, big kind of old mansion-type houses that's been um, made into flats and there's a party going on over here. And um, I can hear all the music and you can see the people coming in and out. And that's fine. It's a Friday night. So, um, but I also noticed something it's hard to explain this, that kind of darted from one side of the building to the other, just further, and, and, and it seemed to be a little bit further up. So I couldn't figure out what it was. I just know I saw a sudden movement of, must have been somebody, it was, it was too big to be an animal, I think. So I'm just walking up to my flat, and all of a sudden, uh, a guy appears in front of me. Fairly, a fairly young guy, but he's he's not drunk. There's no smell of any drink off him. But uh, clearly, I think, just, you know, uh, out of it. Out of it completely. He's made in black and he's got on a black beanie hat. And he just pushes me like that and on a, um, onto the pavement. Really a fucking crack in my back, you know. So... He he starts to lift up my skirt. In those days, you wore kind of maternity dresses. People don't seem to do that now. You'd actually go and buy these big maternity dresses. But don't forget, I was eight and a half months pregnant. So I, was, I wasn't I was a big, big, big pregnant thing, but I needed lots of, lots of room. So for me, time just stopped. Time just stopped. I think it's just your brain trying to catch up with what is actually happening. Uh, not saying one single thing. So this is the part about uh, divine intervention. From in from inside me, uh, I would say maybe the the bowels of my soul, a voice came out of me. Now I've never heard that voice since. Uh, I never had heard it before. The voice was a man's voice. Right? So, as God is my judge, this, this is what happened. So I'm going to try and do the voice for you just now, but I won't succeed. But I want to give you an idea of what it sounded like. So while this guy's trying to push my dress up and I'm trying to pull it down, this voice came out and it said, <clears throat> right, wait, take, wait, I fixed my throat. <clears throat> Don't you touch my... <clears throat> My voice is good. Don't you touch my baby. But it was deeper than that. And it was. You know, sometimes when you see these movies and the devil's speaking, I would say that if, if that's what I had to compare it to, that that was it. 
So I'm as fucking shocked as him that, that, that this voice, I, I'm, where did this come from? So the guy jumped up. I think he maybe thought I was, was a drag queen or something. You know what I mean? Certainly a man in drag. Must have thought it was a man anyway. The guy jumps up and he starts to uh, run in the opposite direction. And I fucking jump up and I'm starting to run, fucking running after him. Then I thought, what are you doing? What are you actually doing? What are you going to do if you catch up with him? If, if eight, eight and a half months you actually catch up with him. How are you, what are you going to do? He might bat you. He might, what are you doing? So I had to calm down, had to haul myself together and get, uh, just sort of walk back up to my flat. It's fucking shaking like a leaf, absolutely shaking like a leaf and still no understanding. So I'm thinking, fuck's sake, maybe I've got a fucking double personality here. Where, is, where does that voice uh, come from? As well as being completely rattled by what had happened, just come, just absolutely random, completely out of the blue, no build-up that anything was going to uh, happen. So it gets up to the flat, of course, I'm looking behind me all the time, thinking he's going to turn around and come back to get me. Get into the flat and burst out greeting and all that, you know? Just, uh, just shocked and... Never slept. Every time I shut my eyes, I could see this guy, this young guy's face in front of me. So I didn't sleep at all. And I phoned my pal in the morning and I said, oh, fuck, I've not slept all night. I told her what happened. She says, Christine, I'll need to come and get you. We'll need to go to the, you'll need to go to the hospital and get checked to make sure your baby's all right. And you as well. So around she came, we got up to the hospital and thank God we were both okay. And the women in the hospital that, that looked at us said, eh, would you consider going to the police? Do you think maybe you should go and report this? I said, I, I don't I don't really know if I could cope with that. I'm just so rattled. I'm so, you know, my, my nerves are shattered. She said, I know, it's a, it's a big ask, isn't it? She says, but maybe you could think about it because, you know, that guy might do that again and he might do that to somebody that doesn't jump up and he might do something worse. I said, yeah, okay. Then I said to my pal, we'll get in the car. Do you know what? Let's go to the police station. If anything happened to anybody, I would never forgive myself knowing I hadn't made that effort. So we go to the police station and we report it. And the policeman says, <clears throat> I've actually had another couple of uh, reports about that kind of thing going on in that area. Would you prepare, be prepared to come in and, and take part in an identity parade? I says, fuck. I says, oh, I don't know. I said, Ump. I said, it'll be next week. And then I thought, I have to do it, I have to do it. Again, if anything happened to anybody and I hadn't taken my own responsibility, then that wouldn't be the right thing to do either. So um, so I, I went and I did the identity parade and I did pick him out, he was. And, and that, uh, so I I went and I picked him out and I said, listen, going to no contact me anymore. Can I just be left out of things now? Because I, I'm, I'm about to give birth here. I, I need to, you know, I need some time just to, you know, get over this and prepare mentally myself for, for what's going to be happening here. And I don't want involved anyone. I said, right, OK. So my friend decided behind my back to phone my parents and let them know what had happened. So she dropped me off at the, at the flat and shortly afterwards they turned up and... Uh, 
and they asked what had happened and they could see what I mean I wasn't a real I wasn't a real state you know I was really really upset and they said right get your stuff you come home with us and you can stay with us until the, your baby is born so thank God for them it was a great feeling to be safe and secure to be looked after just to be a daughter again and actually just not to be alone so the end of 1984, I gave birth to a healthy baby boy. And straight away, the reality hit me like a ton of bricks. My mum and dad uh, took me and my son home with them and they helped in every single possible practical way. Um, I mean, you know, newborn babies often don't sleep uh, during the night and my mum would be there on the night shift and, you know, she would be... Uh, those days we had to wash nappies. I had no money to buy disposable nappies, so we had to wash nappies. It was in the, in the winter when my son was born, so it was really hard going. My dad didn't have that much involvement except that to let my mum and I sleep, he would take the baby out in the pram. You know, a big, a, a big uh, pram, and he would take the baby out for a walk, even in the cold. And in fact, I remember a happy memory when my father came from the Highlands, and he wrapped the baby up in a tartan, a tartan blanket thing that we had. And my father was very interested in astronomy, and he's holding the baby up. And he's pointing to all the different stars and things. And I thought, God, I wish I'd had a mobile phone to take a photograph of that because it was just one generation showing another generation, you know, you know, uh, the, the, the the cosmos. So that's so they, they helped. Both of them helped. Um, I would never have managed without them. I, would, I was hopeless. Absolutely. I needed propped up all the time. And don't forget, these two people had just retired. They would want to have a nice, quiet life. They wouldn't want to be part of the team bringing up a newborn baby. And I always will be eternally grateful. Um, as I say, I would never have managed without them. So like most new mums, it took me a good few months to, to get myself better. But I was skin, I had no maternity pay, and I needed to get back to work as soon as possible. But one day I was coming back from party, got off the bus, just about to walk towards my mum's house and this man stopped me and he says, have you got the time hen? Now, that was a very common thing to happen then. Number one, nobody had mobiles or very, very few people had mobiles. And number two, people didn't have watches. So it was a common thing for people, men and women, to say, if you get the time and you'd look at your watch, because people wore watches then and say, oh, it's such and such a time. So it wasn't a worrying or, or, or anything like that thing to, to do. It was a very normal and ordinary thing to ask. But I just froze and the, I could feel beads of sweat coming down my, my forehead and, and actually down my back as well from my neck. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't move. I was just standing there and I was just staring at this man. And he says, are you okay, Hen? Have I said something wrong? I'm, I'm really sorry. Are you, are you all right? Are you okay? Um, and I still couldn't speak. So he ended up going away saying, I'm really sorry, Hen. I don't know what I've done. And, you know, and off he went. Um, and I kind of... Once he had gone, I kind of got myself squared up and back in the house. Never mentioned it. Maybe about a week later, I was on a bus and a man sat beside me and I felt he was too close to me. You know how sometimes men really have their legs out quite wide and his leg was touching me and I was, 
absolutely. Again, this beads this sweat, but this is more like a panic attack. I had to get off the bus. And so I managed to get off the bus quickly, get some fresh air, and I was okay. I thought, fuck's sake, what's the matter with me? There's something not right here. So I go to the doctor. He says, listen, he's quite an old doctor too, maybe in his uh, 50s, maybe even early 60s. He says, we're doing something new here at this practice. We're doing hypnotherapy. He says, and I think for you, that could be, this could be just the very thing for you. Oh, I says, how does that work? So he gave me a brief explanation. He did one session with me and booked me in for six sessions. So I suppose I was quite pleased. I didn't want to be taking, you know, uh, uh, medication or anything like that, you know. So, uh, so surprise, surprise, even by the second session, I could see how quickly I had been speaking, how quickly I'd been walking, how my shoulders were hunched up almost to my ears. Um, and even by session two, I was really, uh, I, could, I really felt a benefit. So by the time the six sessions were done, I was brand new. I thought oh, that, that, that was absolutely brilliant. And it, it really worked for me. And, it, and, it, and that was gone. And it never, ever happened again. So I was feeling a bit more like myself and I started to look for jobs. Got a job working uh, part-time, back shift, uh, as a supervisor, a cleaning supervisor for a, for a, for a cleaning company uh, in a hospital in the south side. And the women I worked with were absolutely fucking brutal. The, I clearly had to prove myself because my background was hotel cleaning and their background obviously was hospital cleaning and they would say that people in hotels were just playing at it. So they were very confident I would not be able to, to do this job. And actually they were right, hospital cleaning is entirely different and far more detailed and using big machines for all those corridors and theatres and things like that. So there was a lot of things that I, that I had to learn. Um, and because I was the new one, they would uh, say, that you, you need to make the tea. They never, never actually used my name. They said, right, you, you have to make the tea. So... Um, Anything I did was completely uh, ridiculed at this point. So if, if I made, uh, when I was making the tea, I would be handing the tea out and one of them would say, what's the matter with you? Fell out with the coup? And I'm just looking in complete, no idea what they're talking about. What they actually meant was you haven't put enough milk in this uh, tea. And then when they were they were having their tea and they would be sitting enjoying it and they would say, oh, it's great to get your laughing gear in that. And I, I was just ready for it. So <laughs> there was all this stuff uh, going on and they took no fucking prisoners at all. But in time, I did win them round. I mean, I had to, you know, be on top of my game pretty quickly uh, and I did win them round and they were the funniest women you know they said things I'd never ever heard in my life before um, they were typical Glaswegian women unconscious comedians but despite getting a job there was a, a sadness inside me um, my mood was low almost all the time. Of course, you know, out, outside situations could lift it, but there was this kind of constant feeling of hopelessness and, you know, and feeling depressed. Um, and although I temporarily was lifted by, you know, some of the funny things that these women would say, I would go back to this this kind of hopeless feeling. Um, and I was desperate to tell someone how, how I felt. And I told my mum. And this was her response. 
you're what? You're depressed? Don't be ridiculous. Any woman would give the right arm to be in the position that you're in. You've got a job. You've got a lovely, healthy baby. What on earth could you have to be depressed about? So that was that. That was that conversation shut down, dismissed, and never, ever mentioned again. But remember, this was the 80s. You know, this was 40 years ago. And that was how many people of my parents' generation thought. Don't forget, they're the ones that had come through the war. You know, so they were quite hardcore. Um, Eventually, it did turn out that I had postnatal depression. And unfortunately, it took me 10 years to get diagnosis. So I was still going to AA and I met a guy from Bear's Den, a white BMW and a good job. And my mother said, that guy has not to fucking escape. That is the one. You got a net ruin him. He is the one for you. Of course, his parents did not think the same. I am not what they had in mind for their son. Not at all. Uh, a single parent living with my mum and dad. Uh, no prospects. But despite that, we got engaged. Uh, and we very quickly booked the wedding and we booked the reception. And once we'd done that, the guy started to disappear. So he would be saying, oh, come round to your house as usual on Wednesday, for example. And he just wouldn't appear. And he wouldn't phone. And you could, he had, a, I think he had a mobile phone. Or he had one in his car. But, you know, I would be phoning his house saying, is he okay? Because he's not uh, he's not turned up. And the mum would say, I've got absolutely no idea, Christine, you know, where he is. At that point, I never knew whether she was kidding on or not because she didn't like me and she didn't approve of us and she wasn't keen in any sense about the wedding coming up. Uh, so that happened a lot. And then when he did reappear, it wouldn't be a day where you weren't expecting him to. And it was all becoming quite random. There was all these red flags beginning to appear. Um, and I was beginning to think to myself, what am I going to do here? This just isn't right. How can a guy want to marry you, tell you he loves you, and, and, and at the same time disappear? And when you asked him, where have you been? Why were you not able to come when you said you would, you know, sort of explain yourself kind of thing? He would always give something very vague, a very vague answer that didn't really mean very much. So although the engagement was on, it was off, it was on, it was off, uh, the red flags were too much for me and I decided to cancel everything. So I cancelled the wedding, I cancelled the reception. I decided that I was better off alone because what kind of life was I going to have with a guy with a guy like this? And actually, he disappeared and I never saw him again, not even to this very day. So the engagement ring he'd given me, which was a, a, a lovely engagement ring, actually belonged to his mother. Um, and although she wasn't that keen on me, she had consented to give her engagement ring. And I thought, well, I need to give it back. You know, so uh, I phoned the house, went up to give it back. And she said, Christine, that's very decent of you. Thank you so much, because I wasn't really very sure if you would do that. I said, well, you know, 
perhaps it has happy memories for you. It certainly doesn't have happy memories for me. And in the end, you know, was your ring and we're not going to get married now. So it, it's the right thing to do. And she said, honestly, I really appreciate that, Christine. Thanks very much. So when I went back and told my mother, she went, what? You what? You should have had that in the pawn. You could have sold that. You'd have probably got about four, four grand for that ring like that. I said, listen, that would never have brought me any happiness if you... Oh, she says, don't fucking give us that. You're a, what's the matter? I don't know I don't know what's the matter with you at times. You've no got any money. There was your chance. Get the women's ring, get it sold and this and that. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. That's no the right thing for, uh, for me. So that's that to bed. Shortly after that, I did get back to work in hotels Um and I stayed with my parents for, for quite a good while and I made a plan to buy a house near one of my family, but away from my parents. And I was finally able to put down a small deposit for this very small house. Now, I'm going to explain what it was like in those days to get a mortgage. So in those days, you could you, some people got a 100% mortgage, you could get a 98 or 99% mortgage, Almost anybody, almost, if you could provide a couple of pay slips, you know, and I was working in this hotel and I was back to working full time. So uh, it, it really was quite easy to, to, to do. So I thought I'd covered all bases, you know, I thought I was really organised. I thought I had childcare organised for my son, uh, was quite far outside of, of, uh, of Glasgow. But I had just not taken into consideration the hours that I would be working in a hotel. Um, even although I had become a boss now, it really didn't make a difference. You know, if you worked in hospitality, you know, somebody would turn up in your head now, you know, you had you had to go on. So I was up and very late picking up my son and the childminder would be angry and say, look, Kristen, we can't keep doing this. And this is my family time now. And of course, my son was upset because he was sitting there and, you know, feeling awkward. So um, hotels were not ideal, not for me and not for any single parent, really. But I needed the full time work. I needed the money to pay the mortgage. And just because I was on my own, I would sum it up like this. Responsibilities, massive Commitment required, massive. Hours worked, massive. Wages, anything but massive. I just hadn't really thought this through and I was stressed to the max. But then an opportunity came up to work in Aviemore with a two-bedroomed flat with the job. Up I go for the interview, boom, we're off to Aviemore. Another new start. This seemed the answer to all my problems. But straight away, my son didn't settle. He missed his friends. He missed his grandparents because they had practically brought him up. And he was bullied at school because of his uh, Glasgow accent. And when he went back to Glasgow in the holidays to, to stay with my parents, he just really didn't want to come back. So... This may be what, maybe about a year, maybe just over a year. So reluctantly, we, we had to, had to return. I couldn't bear to see him so unhappy. He was unhappy. He never sailed, but I was loving it. You know, I had a social life. I had nice people to babysit him. You know, a lot of young people around me um, and the job was quite good. I loved having my own wee flat. I mean, it was a lovely wee flat. It was fully furnished and 
But, you know, like all mums, you know, your child's happiness has got to come first. So that was the end of that. Oh, I forgot to tell you, I had met a guy. He was 22 and I was 35. I was the talk of the steamy, of course, but my son got on really well with him. And so we all moved back to Glasgow. I sold my house and got another, I got a flat quite near to my parents. My mum, of course, was horrified that I would have a relationship with such a young guy. She said it was obscene and she refused to meet him. But his parents, on the other hand, were all for it and we actually got on really well and we'd go out quite regularly together. But truth be told, I was always a wee bit worried that my young boyfriend would be lured away by a younger woman. But that's not actually what brought the relationship to an end. What happened was that he got in with a hard drinking crowd and he started to go to the casino after work. Not to gamble, but to drink. And sometimes he came home at three in the morning, five in the morning, and sometimes he didn't come home at all. And then he's, when he did come home, he was always pissed. And his drinking escalated until it became intolerable for me. I was a recovering alcoholic myself, and this was very dangerous territory for me. And we parted ways. Meanwhile, I was finding less and less time for AA meetings. I was becoming a wee bit disillusioned. I wanted AA to give me the tools to be present in the real world as a, as a recovering alcoholic. And I was beginning to find that AA was becoming my life and beginning to say, you know, this is a wee bit like a kind of cult. I'm, I'm not very sure about this. So I stepped back, stopped going to meetings. Here was a big test for me. Could I function without the meetings, the practices and the guidelines of AA that had kept me sober? Let's see. But before I bring this episode to a close, I want to say that there is purposefully, purposely no mention of my son's father as he did not play a role in our lives and there is no name reference for my son as this is my story, not his. So thank you as always for joining me. Join me next Wednesday. Remember, we're always on a Wednesday for episode three. And if you're enjoying the podcasts, please tell your family and friends. The more, the merrier. Thanks for your company. See you next week. <laughs>